Welcome to 9 to Thrive, a show about balancing work, community, and creativity. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. Last week, I talked about a law that is super helpful to looking at any group that you're in, any family, organization, recreation, whatever it is. It's Conway's Law, that the outcome of whatever you produce are directly affected by the quality of communication between the members of the group. This week, I'm going to talk about Goodhart's Law. Goodhart's Law states that when the measure becomes a target, it's no longer a good measure. It's another way to look at outcomes. It's another way to diagnose what's going wrong in a situation where things are going wrong, where people are dissatisfied for whatever reason. One reason that this happens is that once the measurement becomes the target, everybody's behavior changes in order to meet that target. This is why public schools in general, but school as a concept, suffers because of this. Once you take away some of the issues about the students themselves being able to be fed or homed or clothed, schools still have a fundamental problem. Government has this problem. Business has this problem. Once you see Goodhart's Law play out, you start seeing it everywhere. Because data, the collecting of it, the deciding what to collect, the questions that are asked, the conclusions that are come to, all of that is subjective on some level. And it is a fiction to pretend that just because there's a number attached, that number has meaning. Boy, we want that to be true. It's a bit of a maybe a natural perversion of the scientific method that that way of approaching many, many things is appropriate, but it's not appropriate to approach everything like that because you fall right down the hole of Goodhart's Law when you do that. Here's how it plays out. You have a group of students and you teach them to master something. How do you find out if they mastered it? Typically, we give them a test. We've made it so difficult at this point. We've packed so many kids into a class, or, and at any level you could find this, that the teacher doesn't have time to learn to know them all. Often teachers end up with a ton of classes with rotating kids all day. There is no way to know them all. When you know them all, you can do an assessment that is more qualitative, that is more subjective, assuming you didn't bring your own baggage to this relationship, assuming that you are, in fact, a reasonably talented teacher. So what happens instead? Well, you test them and they get a number on the test and they get a sense of the kind of material that's going to be tested. Goodhart's Law says, now you teach to that test. Now you teach them what's going to be on that test because that is the goal. That is now the target, is to learn what's on the test. Humans like to learn. We will learn what's on that test. Learning what's on that test is not mastery. Failing to learn what's on that test is not mastery. If you teach for mastery, the test may, if it's well constructed, show you how the student is doing against the metrics that the test actually happens to provide. 
One of the really interesting things for me is one of my all-time favorite stories about learning and teaching was in Wired in, I think, 2012, and it was about a school that is built on a dump. I know I've mentioned it in the past, and it produced some of the world-class mathematicians out of this school all of a sudden because the teacher that they got in there looked around and thought, I can't teach the way I was taught to teach here. There are no resources. So instead, he started doing what I consider to be a version of homeschooling, the, the very best way to educate, which I will state it's an opinion, but as a friend of mine said recently, it's also correct, is to find a problem and have the kids work in every possible domain to solve that problem. So that's what this teacher did. Now that the kids knew how to solve problems, they were able to pass tests that were constructed to reflect problems. They knew what to do. Had they been taught to pass this test, they would not know what to do. And the way you can tell whether this is quality learning or not is whether or not the student retains it. So that's what it is for schools, and it explains a lot. It also points a way to a solution. But that's not the only domain where you can see this reflected. Interestingly, creativity, although I would argue teaching and learning is creativity, but creativity is one of the places where this becomes a really weird and interesting phenomena, Goodhart's Law. Algorithms in apps, so let us say TikTok, the platforms that you host those on want to bring people's attention and interest in the platform. They want to capture attention. That is, ultimately, that's their business model, that your time and attention are worth something. You can be advertised to you will stay on the platform. You will continue using the platform. You will start contributing to the platform. So the reason that those platforms are so, so secretive about their algorithms, they are so, so careful about not being explicit about the targets, the goals, or even what and how things are being measured is because once that is known, people who create will quite reasonably start creating for that measurement. And all of the TikToks and the YouTubes will suddenly look the same and the quality will be gone. It will no longer become a decent, whatever they were measuring, whatever they were using in the algorithm will no longer work because our attention will no longer be captivated if we have a thousand of the same exact things over and over and over and over and over. It's a really interesting phenomena. It's based on how our brains work. But more than that, it's based on an acknowledgement that how our brains work is not really how we do measurements. We don't make those two connections. We don't make the good heart's law connection. In fact, we spend enormous time and resources. I'm thinking in particular, well, institutionally, I guess I could say, right? Schools, businesses, government, we walk through those with this massive blind spot of Goodhart's Law. And it affects us very, very, very badly when all we do 
is try to anticipate the effect of a policy and then change all of our behavior to affect that outcome. And we feel like we are holding ourselves to a high quality. One of the reasons we feel like we're holding ourselves to a high quality is because real learning is messy. Real creativity, the kind that delights us, it's a mess. It's an in-process. It's a slurry. And we don't like that. And our prevailing paradigm of like allergy to emotion, allergy to connection, doesn't like that mess, would rather stick it to numbers, but it is the way that our society is currently set up to make this primacy of numbers, no matter what nonsense they are, to make a primacy of a number that reaching it is an agreed upon goal and metric, but has no substance behind it. A really interesting lens to look at this through would be reputation and trust. So Goodhart's Law, a target, you can't measure trust with a target number. You can talk about like a scale. You could say is more trustworthy, less trustworthy. You could assign a number to that. You could do some looking at that. You could test out a measurement. You could try to make it as well constructed as you could. A lot of happiness surveys, a lot of satisfaction surveys in a business will do that. And it's not bad, but you can't say that that is now a target because you don't really know what that target meant. If instead of going for the target, you worked on the, say, the reputation and the honesty, if you worked on those underlying things that cannot be measured, then those outcomes would be better. But if you work directly on the outcome, it's good heart's law, right? Making a measurement into a target is going to destroy the work that you're doing. And I really, it's really interesting how there are some fundamentals of human behavior that we'll often leave up to institutions or ignore entirely. But without trust, without honesty, and I'm going to sound very Jane Austen-y about this, a sense of good reputation, none of which comes mindlessly. And none of which comes and stays. All of those things are things that are verbs. You have to work on those all the time. You work on those. You maintain those. You improve those. Your outcomes improve. And yet fairly often, ah, what am I saying? All the time. Those are not the worked upon goals. Not really. Instead, it's, you know, sell 20 more cars. We virtually never ask each other, what have you done to improve honesty in this organization? We're taking a little bit of time this year to revisit our own mission and look at our guest list and create some more things. So please enjoy this revisit to an earlier conversation.
Today my guest is Allison Jean Lester, author of wonderful novels such as Yuki Means Happiness and Lillian for Life, as well as numerous short stories and other works. We met when Allison ran an Improv for Writers workshop as part of the Dublin Literary Festival. We'll talk about taking yourself away to get things done, shifting your schedule around, self-confidence, isolation, and the not-to-do list. Welcome to episode three. Allison, thank you so much for joining me. What I want to ask and start out with is how do you balance your creative life so that you can make money and survive? I know you have a family. How do you get stuff done and how did you get to that place? Let's go to how did I get to that point and then I think it'll all make sense. Great. I think that I started writing because I was a massive letter writer and wrote to my family from, I left my, we're both from Massachusetts. I grew up in situate Massachusetts and I went to Indiana university for college and immediately started writing to my parents back in the day, of course, when we wrote with pen or typewriter. Mm -hmm. And then during college, I went and lived in China as well. And then during graduate school and lived in Italy, and then I moved to Japan and all of this was pre-internet. All of this was pre-cheap telephone calls. So I wrote to them massively. And it was when I look back on those letters now, bless my mother who kept every single one of them. I was working really hard on getting them to understand where I was, what, not just what I was feeling, but what I was seeing, what I was smelling, the dialogue going on around me. So it became little scenes. Mm when I started trying to get other people than my parents to read these things, they, I think they found it interesting when I would write little scenes or vignettes, but, but at that point in, in the world, there wasn't much use for that. There was no blogging there, you know, nothing. So it was either develop it in, in towards journalistic writing or which I did some of, I, I moved to Japan in 1991 and met the LA Times correspondent there, Leslie Helm. And he had me help out with a couple of things I did, but I was, oh, it, I was so embarrassing. I did, you know, it was like on a deadline and I did something so wrong. They're like, there's no time to fix this. Oh. Thanks. <laughs> um, but he, he was the one who said to me, have you tried fiction? You know, would you consider? And so that is when I lived in Japan, I, I started writing fiction, but I was working as, um, I had two jobs. I was an editor at a, in a securities company. So I was, I was writing about stocks and bonds and buy or sell. And I also, uh, I had, I did a graduate degree in China studies and economics. So I knew a little bit about what they were talking about, but it was a very good crash course. And I did voiceovers for radio and television which um, is very good for storytelling because I'm very happy doing voices. Um, at the same time, I was having my children. I had two babies in Japan. Oh, so wow. you're doing voices, you're reading books, you're, you know, your animals, your ogres, you're all this. So I did this also for a living and that was quite nicely paid. So, but all of that, of course, is also grist for the mill. All of it is really interesting stuff. Continuing to write to my parents. Once 
email came in. Yeah, we still did that, didn't we? We still wrote long emails in the beginning because phone calls were not were expensive still. It was long distance international calls. I started writing long fiction in Japan mm. during that period in the early 90s. But but had to, I was making a good freelance free time of what do you call it? freelance living? You know, um, we moved then to Singapore. Ninety nine, we moved to Singapore, and um, I started also writing short stories there. But I had started my own business. Um, I think partly partly because uh, my children were little, and I still needed to be freelance. Mm. And that is when I started using improv in corporate training. So oh, interesting. Yeah, I started doing it with writers much more recently. But I, I made a career for about 10 years, not just using improv, but teaching presentation skills, uh, influencing skills, assertiveness, a lot of assertiveness skills in Singapore and the Asian region. I had, I was thinking about this today, actually, before talking to you. One of my, my first job, I think, after babysitter was I was a tour guide at the, national, the U.S. Capitol building. Okay. Every summer in college, my parents had moved from Massachusetts to D.C., and that's where I worked every single summer of college. And, you know, I was very young, but I had large groups, 50, 55 people that I had to manage around the Capitol. Right. Uh, while, and always in the summer, right? So that's the most busy time of the year for yeah. people. And so you had to be confident enough to, to be in the same room with another tour guide and be able to maintain your group's attention. Mm. That really helped me in terms of my own confidence and understanding of how to keep a group's attention. So, so I, I'm sure I drew on that as well as on improvising as, and uh, in my, my corporate training. During this time, I, I had a, a book of short stories published in 2007 that was locked out, Stories Far From Home. And then started a novel. And I realized this is this is where we get into how do you manage your time? Yeah. I realized that if I looked in my diary, okay, so this is still back in the days when we were using paper, <laughs> um, I would put in writing time. I would write writing time very large in, in various parts of my diary. And it was so consistently crossed out in favor because somebody had said, could we meet? Could we do it? Could you do a, a group work thing? And I would, I would make money. Mm -hmm. I would make money. So in order to work with that, I would take myself away. I wrote Lillian on Life. I wrote, I went away for a few days to Hong Kong. And then I went away for an entire week to the south of France. Um, and then in between that summer and the next summer, I wrote a bit. And then I was like, I have to go to France again. I went to another place where I knew nobody. So I didn't talk to anybody. And uh, I wrote there for a week and then was able to finish it. The only way I realized I was going to be able to write as much as I wanted to write and still make money was to shift from day long training, group training to small groups and one-on-one -on -one coaching. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. Because, and, and it was, you know, you have to get a lot older, I think, unless you are more confident than I was as a younger person to be able to say to people, I'm only available from 2 p.m. 
Right. And that is what I did. I stopped doing group training. I for, fortunately, I um, my you met Andy, my second husband. Yeah. My I was eight years between husbands, so a lot of this I was doing. You know, there was a lot of juggling. Is all I'm saying. Yeah, you were a single mom. With I was a single mom. Wow. Yeah. I was. I mean, I, I, I yes, I was single, and I was a mom. My kid's father was extremely active. Co-parenting. You know, yeah. Share. Yeah. Um. So it wasn't. It. I had time off. Yeah. But um. But it, it is a confidence challenge, and uh, doing doing what I was doing, Singapore, it's a it's a small country, and its creative industry is also small. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it, there there wasn't a big network for writers, and that that's definitely developing, mm-hmm. definitely terrific. But anyway, uh, so that was you have to get older to be able to say I'm only available from two. And it was so amazing that people were like, oh, okay. Mm. You know, they would, they would turn their boat. I didn't have to turn mine all the time. Right. Right. And so I stopped doing, uh, oh, so the point about Andy is he's also a corporate trainer. So I was able to say I could recommend this and that then the money would still stay in the family. Which nice. was, yeah. Because <laughs> um, we, we definitely dovetailed in our, in our training. So that was it. I had mornings. I, had, I feel generally like a morning writer but I think as moms that's what we that's when we think our good time is because that's for years when we're used to our children being at school yeah uh, when I went away to France by myself I realized I could write at any time of the day <laughs> uh, it didn't matter it just keep the notebook with you if you're alone right um but uh let's see what happens when I no longer have a dog to walk in the afternoon you know <laughs> because maybe I will I will shift in my mind but as it is now I, I sit down to do creative work in the morning. In the afternoon, if I, uh, I can, I will do more. But to make money when, when it's running out, I, I'm, I'm still an editor. So um, I, I'm involved with this lovely company called Eman. Uh, it's a ger- German publisher, and they publish a lovely series of guidebooks called the 111 Places series. And it's slightly off the beaten track things. So if you picked up 111 places in Dublin that you must not miss, you might find things that you have not heard about, even though you've been living there for a while. I see. Inhabitants of the city as well as tourists might enjoy the book. Um, So that is absolutely terrific because it's not only helping me with managing writers, knowing what that takes, but also... I'm, it's armchair travel. Right, right. Uh, it's fantastic learning about all these amazing cities. So that's basically, if I have a book that I need to edit, I write in the morning and I edit in the afternoon, and that's a, a perfect day. Mm-hmm. It's an absolutely perfect day. And because you, I, like to, I like to think about the skills a lot, you know, and if, if what is it about one writer that is sparkling and the other that is not? Right, right. And, very, very interesting. Even when you look at a sentence, you're like, that sentence fine. So when you put it all together, what is it? All of that's really interesting. I feel very glad to be able to work from home because I can still think when I need to think. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I don't commute anymore. I don't, and I don't live in a city anymore either, which is very helpful to me. I look out the window, mm. you know, a lot. But that is, that is now my kids are 20 and 23. They're in the States. And um, really, it's just the dog. 
that, that, you know, that make me me do things at a regular time. Right. Right. Is it isolating this, this way of working? an interesting question because i mean you've met me you've seen me run a workshop yeah i present as an extrovert you know i i definitely i i i love being with people and in front of people i love teaching however i have to withdraw so in fact i i need to be at home i need to be by myself i get i get overwrought and um it's so busy in my head. Mm. It's so, so noisy. And so offering the Improv Writers Workshop uh, is partly to keep that muscle. You know, that's, that is something I'm, I have not been teaching for a while. I haven't performed improv for a while. So the fact that I love it when it's an, it's an odd number of people because I got to mm-hmm. pair up with, a, you know, a few people and get to play. And, and also realize if you, you know, I realized I was a little rusty in this area, it's like, you can be good at teaching it, but whoa, if I have to do it. Um, but it's also, uh, I want to, I want to travel around. I want I want to get around. I want to meet more people and, and network. It's not isolating to me emotional, okay. but it's definitely icing in terms of, yeah, your professional network. Yeah. Yeah. I lived in the country for many, many, many years and it, yeah, there were reasons why it was great, great to raise the kids there, but there are reasons why it was a dead end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, certainly my little branch of it was uh, yeah. back in the U.S., but actually yeah. Western Massachusetts. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that uh, Singapore was also a wonderful place to raise children. Absolutely fantastic. But it's not surprising to me that one's now in New York and one's in L.A. Right. That they're now spreading their wings. And yeah. 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 Hmm. That was my little question here. I just had like this bit about isolation. Yeah. It's, isn't it how often people ask writers if they're lonely? Mm. But you're always with people. I feel really strongly about my people. Mm. You know, the book that I'm working on now, I, I, um, they are extremely real to me and they are always in here. I mean, they're always in my head, right? They carry them around, but particularly when I'm in my office they, they start moving again, you know, they, they start, they stop being in their holding pattern and they, or, or, you know, I I think about them a lot and I believe them. Mm. So I don't, I don't think I feel lonely. It's only when you have to, well, and my husband works from home too, right? Right. So if I have somebody to talk to, so that's, that's it. I wonder what it would be like if I, if he didn't, if he was away all day. Yeah. And that be lonely. That's a, that's possible. I might be, even more productive. (laughs) (laughs) But it's nice. Was it hard to develop your authentic voice or get the sort of um, confidence you needed to be able to not? I mean, this is a question I always have, especially you work as an editor, but of course you yourself are edited. And there's a point after which it becomes, but it isn't the editors, you know, they have influence, but then at what point is it changing over to be their authentic voice and not yours? Yeah, I think it depends on how um, how much they feel needs to be done. Mm. And and uh, in the in the first novel, uh, Lillian on Life, people, the, both my agent and the editors who bought it, felt it was in good shape. So there wasn't they they posed some very good questions and asked for more here and there, and were fine when there was one place where I said no that that 
I think that has to stay like this for this reason. They were very reasonable in terms of that. The second one had to be rewritten many times. And that was definitely very challenging for me because it felt fine to me every time. (laughs) That's what I wondered. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that their editing made my next effort or the next one or the next one any less authentic. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been happy with it every time. Mm -hmm. So it was they weren't telling me how to write it. I think they were telling me what they were and weren't comfortable with. Okay. Now that I, for this one that I'm working on, I have not, uh, I have not finished it and I have not shown it to anybody professional yet. Mm. Uh, It's, I needed an agent in England. I have an agent in New York, but this book is set in England and all the characters are English. And then my publisher here has said, we, we would, we would like you to have an an English, a British uh, agent. Mm. is a full-time job this so this is where we go from let's say right at the moment I'm not working on editing a book I'm just working on my own stuff so sometimes in the afternoon if I don't want to write I have to do the business of writing right right which is huge which is not which is self-promotion it's reading other people's stuff and it's also finding it's finding your network and it's finding your champion If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about balancing work, community, and creativity. Mm. And because an agent won't look at three chapters and then say they want to represent you, they will ask for the rest. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I have to write the whole thing before I promote myself to an agent. However, that means that I'm writing completely independently like I was before I ever got published. So it's very freeing. You know, it, 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 it means there's, you know, I don't know if it'll sell, but I can write however I damn please. Right. The time. Yeah. So it's a, it's a lot of uh, unpaid work, but would you rather be doing something else? No, mm. no, never. Mm. So that is, that is it. another thing is we live in, we live in a part of, Britain that is not as expensive as the people in London and the people in Birmingham you know we're we're in between we're we're somewhere where that we can afford mm. to live so there's plus and there are plus and minuses for that but um but if you're willing to get on trains and and I go to literary literary festivals just as a you know as a listener I buy tickets and I hope to do more improv for writers at festivals but even if I don't, I will still continue to go in order to meet other readers and writers. You know, you, you produce your card, right? you get ideas, you join a workshop. I did a poetry workshop. I, I attended a poetry workshop at one. That's, mm. that's great skill building, you know, and that, if you are, you pay for that, you can put that on your expenses. These are professional expenses. Right. You're honing your skills. Right. Have you, um, have you had to overcome a lot of rejection in this process? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I figured oh. that was the, yeah. <laughs> the. I figured that was the little uh, yeah, ele- elephant in the in the next room. Yeah. Anyway, always <laughs> a rejection, and people. The thing about um, there's there's rejection from literary magazines, and there's rejection from agents, and agents often don't write back at all. So you have to just give yourself a certain amount of time before you contact somebody else. But that's why I said it, it could be a full-time job because there are so many. So figuring out whom to send it to right. is going to be, uh, I'm now, as I 
Twitter has been helpful. I initially was resistant to Twitter when I, when uh, Lillian on Life was published and Putnam asked me if I would tweet and I was resistant to that. I didn't, uh, you know, there's only so much you can do, but I have joined Twitter and I have benefited hugely, partly because I've learned about opportunities for writers. If you follow the right people, if you follow writing movers and shakers, you know where the competitions are, you know, I think it may have been from may have been from Twitter that I learned about the Dublin Festival and that they had put a call out for workshops. So for people to send proposals in. So I have read more writers and learned about more writing and writing opportunities from Twitter than from anything. Mm. So while it, you know, I don't do a tremendous amount to try to promote followers for me, I use it as a because I don't, you know, that's where the pain is. Mm. That's where you make an effort and then nobody cares. And you, you, you have to really work on not worrying about that. Right. But look at it for opportunities. It's enormous. It's enormous. And I'm sure if it's, for, if it's that way for writers, it's that way for everybody. Do you ever struggle with like that lottery thinking? That's always, that's, that's often been my, one of my sort of background things is that you put in all the work and you're like, this'll do it. This'll be it. And then the crash is hard to decide next time I will do it again. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Let's see. I think partly because there are so many, like you don't have to go down that road again, but there are so many roads. Yeah. There are so many opportunities. You have to be very careful though, because some of them look really slick and they don't know how to proofread, you know, their own literary, digital literary magazine. Right. So, you know, you you have to choose your associates well. Mm. My mother also is a writer and she started writing when I was a child. And so I watched her send stuff out and I she her attitude was always great like it was always the envelope to send it to the next place just has to be ready when it comes back you put it in another one you know and you send it to the new address you know <laughs> basically it's just it's the machine gun approach yeah yeah which is really, really it's really helpful and we all have our holy grail of where we want to be published right um but you can you can wait in silence for for such a long time uh, you just have to take the long view. You really have to take the long view. I, I've been, I have rejection letters from the the New Yorker going back to, but going back twenty years, uh, when they actually sent a piece of paper, right, and on a file. And I, I just, if that's what you want, you keep doing it. But it's not like, but don't only do. Mm. Be stupid, you know. Figure out what the other ones are. Mm. Figure out it. And, you know, you have to invest money. This is, again, the business of it. I buy literary journals because they say, please read us before you submit to us because they're so tired of getting stuff that's not appropriate. Uh, in, at UMass, one of my student jobs was being the person that sent out the rejection letters for the Massachusetts Review. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to write a handwritten note on all of them, which was a nice exercise. Right? Wow. Yeah. I and had- was it? because it was inappropriate like they shouldn't have sent it to you at all mostly yeah wow (laughs) yeah and so that is that takes a lot of time so I read journals and I think is my writing appropriate for this will they like it because one place I knew it was appropriate but it still took 11 months for them to respond Mm. and they love the story 
but they, you know, a lot of these places have two people and get 50 stories a day. Mm. So it takes a long time. And that is it. You take the long view and you do, and then you make your own fun. Part improv for writers is me making my own fun. I get to go to literary festivals and I'm, you know, I'm in the brochure yep. and that's fun for me. Yeah. You know, it's fun for me. Another thing is I've written, I wrote a story four or five years ago that I couldn't figure out how to place. I, I just can't figure out what, what journal, where it would work. And I mean, I'm, you get rejected and then you try something else and then you think you're right and you're not or time timing is a lot. Timing is huge. So that's nice. So then I thought a friend of mine, an actress, you know, actresses have a lot of time between jobs as well. Yeah. Just like writer. So she and a bunch of friends got together and they made some little fantastically funny, well-made tiny little movie just for themselves. Oh, that's and then great. Put a, it's fantastic. So then I thought, I live around the corner from a guy with a fantastic voice, an American guy, as it turns out. And um, he's also a musician. And this story is about a middle-aged musician who develops a, an awkward crush on a really young backup singer. And so I read it to him. I went over for, to his house for coffee and I read it out to him and I asked him if he would, if he would read it so that I could put it on my website so that people can hear it. It's, people like to listen sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And if I could wait another four years before anybody wanted to publish it. And um, I think it's a perfect, and, and I wrote a song. I wrote the lyrics of a song for this. So it's perfect. He's, he's now trying to work. He's a musician trying to work out a melody so that he could perform the song as well. That kind of thing is me making my own fun. Yeah. But also developing outreach because I can then put it up on Twitter, listen to my story. Right. Because right, right now I have nothing you can read. Mm-hmm. You know, if you haven't bought the box, I don't know where to send you to to read all this pages and pages of things that I've written. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, actually um so at the end of that festival Neil Gaiman spoke the the oh. Dublin one and uh about 40 minutes of it was him reading. Which mm. was just so pleasant to just sit there and be read to. <laughs> There's something about that, isn't there? There yeah. it's a different experience. And you getting his voice, it's how he wants you to hear it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the emphasis on the right syllable. <laughs> um, so a lot. I, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned before you mentioned champions, and it's sort of part of yeah. the, the community piece of that. How do you do that? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that just seems, uh, it, it, it just seems so difficult to do. Mm-hmm. I wrote, I used to write a a column for a magazine called Success Magazine. And they, one of them was about self-promotion. And a lot of people feel like self-promoters are are the devil. And so I don't want to be one of them. And what I recommended to people was that they promote their team's effort. Mm. And they, they, they show how much they understand where other people are doing well, you know, so in corporate environment, that is a very good way to go about it. You don't want to blow your own horn, blow your team's horn, Mm. pick out people because they will also then learn to do that from you and they will do it. Your team will start doing it generally. In terms of, of champions, you have to be ready to be someone else's champion. If you want one, Mm. you must. And, um, you must like what they do 
you know, to, to, to talk about it. But I think um, that is what I, I just try to develop relationships mm. and in developing relationships. That means just like in, just like in our improv workshop, listen first, right? Listen first and then you'll know what to do. So somebody who, Oh God, it's amazing what happens in publicity, but mostly what doesn't. <laughs> it, it, I'll deny having said this, but it's, it's really boring. And so, but a case, a nice case in point, the, my first novel got a lovely review from a woman who writes reviews as uh, the Mitford side. Okay. She's, and when the second novel came out, I thought, well, have they not sent her a copy? And she, they, they hadn't, they hadn't thought that it would, she would like it. Because the second novel was oh, so different. It was very clear why Lillian on Life would be a natural for the Mitford Society, if you're interested in the Mitford sisters and whatever. Anyway, I contacted her, and, and um, she loved it. And she, she, the second one, completely different, set in Japan, nothing to do with any of all of that. And she, she wrote her own review of it, but she also wrote one for the Lady magazine of it. So she placed it in two places. Then, as a result of that, the publisher put her review in the paperback. So she was really excited because then her visibility then rises. And we have stayed in contact just about, she's also on her own. You know, she's also, she also has a tailbone problem. Like we, we all, we like, we think who you are. And then, you know, she, she's like, when are you coming to the Belfast festival? And I'm like, well, who do you know at the Belfast festival? You know, <laughs> how can we make this work? I think it's, it's just, what is she, what is she all about? What are you all about? Where does it, where is it interesting? Because you have to be rolling along, picking up information that's useful, not just to you, but to other people. Mm. And that, that takes maybe a, maybe you have to be a connector type, mm. but in order to develop connections, you have to be willing to listen and to offer listen, support, offer. Mm. And the likelihood is that the other person will go, well, she's nice. You should talk to her, you know? <laughs> so, so do you ever struggle with distraction and focus? I mean, that's... I take, <laughs> that's how much Okay, <laughs> but, but I take it for not when I'm writing. Okay. I don't have, yeah, I take it for admin. Mm. Like it's their business is very hard for me. And um, when I know I have a big, a big, admin job to do taxes are hard you know all of that stuff is really hard I do get distracted when I'm writing and usually I know that I should be doing something else then like Mm. if I'm it's not the right time to be working maybe on that so I had a lot of trouble this morning working on chapter 22 a lot of trouble but Sometimes that means you need more research. I do more research Mm. there's Mm. always a short story that I can work on again but I try to stay in the creative space. I don't, I don't, I try to keep the other stuff for afternoon. So if I'm having trouble, I'll, or I'll read, I'll read some poetry or I'll, one thing I've been doing lately that I've really enjoyed uh, because I, you may have noticed I had a brace on my right hand. Yeah, when so you put it on take repeti- it off. Yeah, repetitive uh. strain. So I've taught myself to write with my left hand over the last or so yes That's because cool. I'll do it again you know or I'll break it or I'll something I'll cut my finger cooking or something and I won't be able to and I like to write by hand I was just gonna ask you that yeah, it, I do I, I don't always do it 
but um, more and more mm-hmm. I do. I like to. So what you're seeing behind me is my window, and beneath it is my writing desk. You see behind me there. Oh, that's lovely. I, yeah, it's very nice. So I can look out the window. There's no. I don't allow any technology on the desk. Whereas then I turn my back on that and I come here to the computer and I will transcribe what I've written or I'll do, as I say, the business of writing or just the business. <laughs> uh, so in order to keep in the writing space, keep in the creative space, when my hand hurt lately, I have been transcribing poems I've never read before into a notebook with my left hand. And it started out very, very shaky. But I've done it now to the point that I'm working on chapter 22 this morning. I was writing with my left hand. Wow. In order, and it's very different. Wow. It's, I have to do it more slowly, as you can imagine, which is very good. Yeah. yeah. I like it. There's a, um, whole, there's a whole cross barrier thing. Yes. That, right. uh, that happens, that changes your thinking as well, which I just think is very yeah. cool. And, and it's, it's, I think I'll write a little essay on it because it started out when I was struggling. It looked, I, my mind went all the way back to how we were taught to write mm. in third, to write cursive in like third or fourth grade, how to make the letters. And to the point, and I asked myself, how do I make that letter with my right hand? I know I don't write it like that, but I, I couldn't, I didn't know how I did it with my right hand. I could only think of how we were taught. Right. Now I can see that I'm starting to develop a left hand right handwriting of my own, huh. but it's not like my right hand. Oh, that's really interesting. Did you go back and look at the diagrams of the little arrows to do the directional? Oh, yeah. I just knew ah, the direction. Oh, I would just consistently write it wrong. <laughs> right. And it's the, the most difficult one is capital J. Mm. So, yeah. That one I do it back. I do it backwards, but it's getting easier and easier. And it's such a, such a strange, feeling but that sort of little thing keeps me in the creative space when I'm not not writing I feel if I don't spend creative time I I don't feel good in my brain but I also don't feel good about me Mm. so it I there's always something I can do right right well this has really been great I don't know if there's anything else that you've covered such a great breadth of stuff about balancing it with kids balancing it with life yeah. kids are material too this is the thing everything is material mm. oh yeah you mean fodder <laughs> uh, yeah if you're talking about a, a writer's profession and, and managing time I think that is an advantage that we have over everybody when we're doing something that we don't want to be doing at least you can make it into a story <laughs> you know and that, that you know the most difficult things in life can be can be tolerated if you can find the angle, you know, to put it into your book. And that, that is so consistently been the case for me. Have they, um, have they ever told you, don't you dare? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But yeah, but it's not, not just, not just for children or actually my, my daughter doesn't even, she doesn't read what I write. It's too emotional mm. for her. So she's very, very sensitive. Mm. So, and that's fine. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then, you know, you ask, Sometimes you ask for permission from people and sometimes you, you disguise them. But, but that is a huge advantage. I think it must be much more difficult to be a, somebody of a, but I think painters put, painters put what happens to them in the day in their paintings, oh, yeah. even if they're hours, you know, and musicians and that. 
that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, I think that has to happen. It's just when it's full conversations and people are like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we may have this fight, but it will make it into the book. <laughs> the, the, the problem, though, is the problem also is that people keep telling you what they want you to put in the book. Oh. <laughs> you know, but this would be a great story. And you're like, this has been the most boring afternoon. <laughs> yeah. But I, I say to people in terms of managing creative and like just to wrap up my yeah. thoughts on yes. the creative and lucrative life. Yeah, that was actually a little thing I was going to ask you about. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, I did give up my day job because I wasn't enjoying my day job, but I still have a part time job. Mm. And the reason that I can have that part time job is that I live in a place I can afford mm. to live. So you and I don't I don't deny myself much. But, but I, I, I couldn't afford to, to live and, and create in a more expensive place than I live in now. Mm. Uh, and that's fine. That's fine. I love my desk. I love my window, you know, and I, I love what goes in, inside my head. So, yeah, doing, doing a bit more to make money and then, then it's taken care of. Did that take a leap of faith just to be able like, the writing will do it? The part-time job will do it. Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Or was it more like kind of a, well, let's maybe take a little, you know, overbalancing in the writing. It was a leap of faith. I think is I got, I got paid quite well for the first two novels. So mm. now I've gotten to, so that was just like, that was the bridge. Mm. It, now I'm at a point where I'm like, okay, that's, that's done. You know, <laughs> that, that's, that's, they're not, they they pay in quarters, right? They pay for signing, manuscript, hard, and and paperback. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so that's done. Like all four payments are made. You know that. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I think that the, having that bridge got us to this place where, you know, we 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 own the house, right? You know, and then the running costs are manageable, right? I do think that it's worth a leap of faith, but but I did. I did nonetheless take the job, you know, I did nonetheless take the, take the part-time job, mm-hmm. but, because, but I like it. I need, I need a network. Right. Right. You no, know? I need a network. And yeah. Do you ever feel I, like there's a, a demand to speed up your writing like to, for any reason? Do you have to give yourself false deadlines or anything like that and be any urgency about getting stuff done? I'm s- less now, strangely. I, I really. Now that I'm now that all those payments are made Mm -hmm. and I am on my own with this next book, I am actually enjoying having nobody waiting for it. And that is, I think this year, this year is my, my mom's not well. Oh, this year, you know, I, I've told myself the book is not the most important thing this year. So the job is even more important, you know, and that, that's got to be fine. Right. Because you have to be ready to, you know, we don't live where our parents are, do we? Right. Yeah, you have to be ready to go. And I think that that's once we've stopped managing our children, we're then in, we're managing our parents. True, yeah. Um, even if they don't want to be managed, we have, <sighs> you know, if we love them, we have to be ready to visit. Yeah. You know, and do something. From time to time. So I think that's a really interesting area of how long is that gap 
between the kids are grown and the parents need you. Right. And then you're sort of, it's hard not to go back to old roles. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What advice would you give yourself your your previous self? Like, what would you say to yourself a couple of years ago about all of this and where you are now? Um, I would go back further. I would go mm-hmm. back to where I just kept choosing money. Ah, uh, okay. Writing. And um, because I think I could still have had the money, but I I just needed to say to them, not today. Mm. not today you know and I a friend of mine she was uh she came to Singapore for a visit and she was it was maybe I I can't remember exactly the situation it was a short visit or something and she could only she was only free on one or a couple of times and I was like I can't that's my writing time and I remember she said to me like that hurt me and then to realize if you had worked in a bank I wouldn't have questioned it for a second like you're trying so hard to get this book written and I think you should put it down right yeah but you couldn't take a half day off work right I ask right. because you're not getting paid I expect you to put down your pen that is a really interesting thing yeah. that happens yeah and so being if you if you really put aside writing time hang on to it with your your fangs and your nails and your thighs and just hang on to it because you can't, you cannot, you're not giving yourself a boost of confidence if you're giving up that every time thinking it's not as valuable as everything. Right. And that's a hard one when um, there's, there is that necessity for like we were talking before about relationships and there's, and the networking and the piece of that. I mean, I know a lot of times I've definitely said, okay, well, people first people first. So, you know, this person's only in town for a little bit of time, so I'll just shift everything. But it is a really interesting line to draw about when and where, and of course, to make that same parallel, which is people first, but you're right. If I worked at a bank, I wouldn't see until five o'clock tonight. So still you first, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't quit my job. Exactly. And that, yeah, that's really precious. And if you're on a roll, you need, you need to keep thinking. Right. You have to keep thinking. So getting other people, when I was about 45, no, I think it was actually like bang on 45. I started thinking in terms of my not to do list. Oh, nice. I'm no longer doing that. <laughs> you can't pay me to do that. And it, it has a very powerful impact. I love that. And there's no need to be an asshole about it, but it was just totally like, guess what? Just shaking left, right, left, right. Head goes left, right, left, right until they shut up. um and that does make space for for creative writing yeah really does it helps to have a champion in the home like if you're really on your own it's difficult I Mm -hmm. think in terms of discipline but um when Andy sees that I'm getting really like what my mother would call my knickers in a twist um (laughs) and uh he asks me like have you done any writing today like what where are you have you have you let go of that Nice. He can tell when I'm maybe like, no, we we better, you know, take care of the rose bush, whatever, you know. And he's like, really? <laughs> Are you writing a book? You know. So like, <laughs> there is generally, I'm I'm I I come in here every morning, but you can let it slip, and it's great to have a champion at home. Right. Yeah. Really. Writing. Uh, I know. I know you want to stop, but I. I no, that's okay. Keep going. I actually don't. I just want to okay. be sure. I I know you have to write, so oh. I want to be sure. I... Don't take all your whole time. Um, I think that that 
people on their own, when you find a champion in, you can find a professional champion and you just can, you can find a, what are my goals champion? So now I know about your podcast and your goals mm. for the podcast. You know, I can support that. Mm-hmm. Right. And you, Lovely. you, it, finding people who ask you every once in a while, you know, have you picked that short story up again? Right. You know, I really liked it or right. whatever. It's just to say that's valuable. We have so much trouble valuing what we do over others, particularly once we've been mothers. Yeah. You know, I really think so. A good, a good gang, a good gang around you that just checks in that you're doing the same thing for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got to get, wrap up now, unfortunately. And it's terrific. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. thank Allison Jean Lester for talking with me and sharing her experience and insights. Making creative work a priority is a skill I've decided to learn to master as a result of this episode. You can and should get her books at your favorite bookstore or use the links in the show description at working9tothrive.com. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number nine, to access show notes, find resources, and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.